Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. We thank you for your sovereignty, which is seen in your control over the weather that comes and goes. The seasons are in themselves a demonstration of your faithfulness. And even as this week we come into another time of unexpected cold and perhaps a delay in spring going back and forth between those seasons, we recognize even these things are part of the world that you have made. We thank you for your sovereignty over uh, those who are in positions of government. And though we may not agree with policies or decisions that are made, we also recognize that in the end, you will rule and reign and your rule and reign will be just and will be perfect. And may the imperfections of this world and systems of government under which we live push us too long for that day in which Jesus reigns, as we read about in your word. Until that day, Lord, I pray that you would help us to fulfill the admonition of 1 Timothy to pray for kings and all of those who are in authority, that they would permit us to live peaceful and quiet lives, that they would come to salvation themselves and turn and trust in you. Lord, help us to have compassion on those with whom we disagree, even those who would wish ill and even death upon us for simply trying to carefully and wisely follow what your word commands us to do. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful stewards of the opportunities that you give us, whether that be more time with family, whether it be uh, work that is ongoing through a time like this. Help us to be faithful in the tasks that you have laid before us. I pray that you would encourage all of us connected with our church family and who might listen to this uh, with hope in what truly gives hope, which is the fact that Jesus saves and he lives within and he will come back. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read for you the passage that we're going to be looking at today. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but I hopefully we will see how all of these different sections connect with each other here in Ephesians 5 and 6. We're going to start in Ephesians 5. I'm going to begin at the end of the section we looked at last time, the last phrase of that section, or the first phrase of this section, depending on how you take it, is verse 21. Ephesians 5, 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Then Paul is going to give three examples of this. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And so as we look at these three examples that Paul gives of what it means to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, I think we should ask ourselves some questions. First of all, we should ask ourselves whether this is intended to be a submission to one another that goes both ways. That is, are wives called to submit to husbands and husbands to wives? Are parents called to submit to children and children to parents? Are slaves called to submit to masters and masters to slaves? There may be people out there who would argue that the second two examples of relationships ought to be handled that way, but the one that receives the most controversy is this first section, verses 22 through 33. There are a variety of reasons for why this is the case. I'm not necessarily wanting to focus on the history of all those sorts of things, but I just want us to recognize that our perspective on this passage may be very much shaped by the culture in which we live. The culture in which we live can take a variety of forms. For example, if you are a part of a culture that would say something along these lines, every woman must submit to every man in the context of the church or perhaps in all of life, that's going to shape your understanding of this passage. If your cultural background is no woman should ever have to submit to any man because that's just unreasonable and unfair, that's going to shape your understanding of this passage. Let's start with what the passage actually says. Wives, to your own husbands is to the Lord. The NASB fills in the words, be subject, bringing them over from verse 21, and I think that's certainly the sense contextually. To whom must wives submit? I think it is clear that wives are to submit to, as it says, your own husbands. This does not mean, as some have claimed, that every woman in the church is to submit to every man in the church. This is a call specifically for a wife to obey her husband's leadership. What's the reason given? Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. I don't think, there's probably people out there, but I don't think any of us would argue with the idea that Christ is the head of the church. If we argued with the idea that Christ is the head of the church, then we would be arguing against what we looked at in chapter 1, where it says, He, God the Father, verse 22, put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Paul is not saying something new or contradictory. Paul is saying the exact same thing that he said in chapter 1 and building on it by way of looking at how the marriage relationship is supposed to function. So what's the reason given for the wife to be subject to, to obey her husband as the Lord? The reason given is this. Because the church is under Christ and Christ is the head of the church, Christ is in the same position that God has established over the church as God has appointed the husband to be over the wife. So just like the church is supposed to follow Christ's leadership, the wife is supposed to follow the husband's leadership. And that's what verse 24 basically says. At this point, there are people who get very upset that the Bible would dare to say such a thing. Paul's words are viewed as outdated and prejudiced and impossible to follow in today's world. In response to that, I would ask you this question. Has the authority structure that God has established changed with reference to Christ in the church? If not, Paul's argument was not, culture says men should be in charge, women should follow. Paul's argument was, Christ is in charge of the church, so the church is to follow Christ. The husband is the head of the wife, so the wife should follow the husband. If the underlying basis that is the reason for doing this operating in this way has not changed, then we can't lightly cast aside what this passage says. In response to those who then say, well, that just sets women up to be taken advantage of by men, look at the next verse. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This should not be a point at which we compare whose job is harder because it is certainly difficult to obey, and it is certainly difficult to love. But look at the example that Paul holds up for husbands to follow. You can't just love your wife when it's convenient, when she makes your favorite meal, or says nice things to you, or whatever else. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Christ loved the church while the church was not yet the church, while the people that would compose the church were still sinners. How do we know that? Because he does it, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. Not because she is already sanctified, but so that he might sanctify her, the church, the members of the church which compose the church, the body that's referred to throughout the book of Ephesians. Christ loved when there was no reason for love to be deserved. Christ sacrificed when there was nothing to compel the sacrifice in and of, him, of us who are the objects of his sacrifice. Why did he do it? Verse 27, to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is not saying so that the church would win a beauty competition. This is saying so that the church would be cleansed of the sin which characterized each one of us before we knew Christ. How do we know that? Because he's just got done in chapters 4 and 5 talking about putting off the old way of life and putting on the new way of life. Because he said in chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You didn't deserve God's kindness. God had no reason to choose you for salvation as chapter 1 talks about. But he did so that he might 
call you to good works, as chapter 2 says, and give you all the blessings of salvation that chapter 1 talked about, and transform you as chapters 4 and 5 have been talking about. And just as Christ is doing that work in the church, husbands are part of God's work in showing love to their wives, even when the, their wives are sinners, right? Verse 28, how much are husbands supposed to love their wives, even as their own bodies? Now, this is not an argument that we need to love ourselves more or anything like that. That's a way that psychology, uh, not so much psychology, but psychiatry has twisted an understanding of this sort of idea. We're not called to love ourselves. Paul's just saying it's a fact that we do. As a general rule, we feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we bathe ourselves, we take care of ourselves, right? To a greater or lesser extent, we do things that we think are good for our bodies or that actually are good for our bodies because they're our bodies. And so, verse 28, if in this analogy that Paul is drawing here, the church is Christ's body, the wife is the husband's body, He's going to make that point in verse 31, this being joined, this becoming one flesh. Practically, two distinct human beings. One can be in this place, one can be in the other place. Relationally and morally and spiritually speaking, husband and wife become a single unit. And so what benefits one benefits both, what harms one harms both. And so Paul is arguing on that basis, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Verse 29, Christ does this for the church because we are members of his body. Then he gives in verse 31, for this reason, this goes way back to the book of Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Most of us, unless there's something wrong in our thinking and our desires and all those sorts of things, do not stand there and do injury to ourselves, right? If I know that there's a, a raspberry bush in front of me and it's full of thorns, I don't grab that and, and rake my hand up and down those thorns to intentionally injure myself. In the same way, the husband shows love to his wife by doing what is best for her and because they're joined as one flesh, if he does what is bad for her, it's bad for him as well. And so in this way, Paul excludes those people who would say, well, the wife has to submit to her husband, so the husband can do whatever he wants, and the wife can never say differently. If the wife refuses to follow her husband's leadership, she is sinning. If the husband fails to follow Christ's example by loving his wife, he is sinning. What does this look like practically speaking? There's a couple of different ways that we can think about this. One is in the way that husbands and wives relate to one another in the normal everyday context of life. Sometimes people will say men need respect and women need love. They'll say that perhaps based on verse 33, but perhaps based on other reasons as well. Each individual should love his own wife even as himself. The wife must see to it that she respects her husband. See, the passage says the wife should be getting love and the husband should be getting respect. So if the wife isn't getting love and the husband isn't getting respect, that's a basic need that's being unfulfilled. And so there's a reason for the marriage to end in something like divorce, or there's a reason for the one 
spouse to manipulate the other spouse to get the thing that, that he or she wants. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying there are certain duties or responsibilities that the husband has to the wife and the wife has to the husband. That doesn't translate then to these being needs that each must do for the other, as in, if you don't do this for me, I won't do this thing for you. That's basic selfishness, right? What about the concept of love languages? There are a variety of spins on this. My basic concern with them, though, is this. Just like the person who says, men need respect and women need love, and if they don't get those things, then the marriage is not going the way that it should, we are not supposed to be asking ourselves, what do I need? What makes me happy? The question we ought to be asking ourselves is, what has God called me to do? How can I love this person that God has put me in a relationship with? What's the, what's the proper response in that? Husbands, love your wives. She could respect you. She could not respect you. She could badmouth you to her friends. She could tear you down in front of your children. You still have a responsibility to show love to her. Wives, if you feel like your husband is not loving you in the way that you would like, he buys you flowers and you'd rather he took you to dinner, do you have the right then to say, well, I'm not going to show any, I'm not going to obey what God has called me to do because you're not doing the thing that I want you to do. No, that's manipulative. That's selfish. That's not the way that marriage is supposed to work. Let's take it a step further. What about a husband who has completely ignored this passage and is mistreating his wife with words, physically, in some other way? What then is the proper response? Well, the proper response at some level, is for other men in the church to come alongside that man and say, you need to repent and turn back to God and stop living wickedly. There's also an element at which, given the laws of our society, that those who uphold the law might need to be involved, depending on what's going on. One would hope that in the church, before something got to the level that outside authorities, authorities would need to be involved, that the men in the church would know each other well enough and be willing to speak hard truth to one another often enough that a husband would never get to the point where he was so entrenched in his sin that he thought it was right to mistreat his wife. But we live in a sinful, broken world, and that's not always the case. Call that person to repentance. If they have broken the law, then they bear the consequences of the law. But sin cannot be allowed to continue. Why? Paul said in verse 32, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. If marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, and a husband is cursing at his wife, or beating his wife, or being excessively controlling toward his wife in an unloving way. How is that a good picture of Christ in the church? It's not. It's a terrible picture of Christ in the church, and he needs to repent. What about a wife who does not show respect to her husband? If she is constantly mocking him, or speaking badly of him, or refusing to listen to him, what does this passage say to her? 
It says that she too must repent. It says that she is setting herself up as an authority over the structures of authority that God has established, which is also sin. A woman who is trying to manipulate her husband and disrespect her husband and all of these sorts of things needs to examine this passage and say, am I acting toward my husband the way the church ought to be acting toward Christ? And if the answer is no, then there needs to be a careful reevaluation of words and actions and all of those sorts of things to say, where have I gone wrong and why? Marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's obedience to Christ. So many times in our marriages, we live selfishly. Husbands say, I love my hobbies. I love hanging out with my friends. I love uh, leisure activities, golf and fishing and, and all of these sorts of things. I love myself. So they don't love their wives. Sometimes wives say, I don't feel like my husband is showing love to me in the way that I, I want him to show love to me. And so I'm going to not listen to anything that he has to say or try to circumvent anything that he's trying to accomplish. Is that the way we ought to be behaving toward each other as Christians? I don't think so. Instead, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. None of us lives up to that standard, but it's one that we ought to all be striving toward. And wives, respect and follow your husband's leadership as the church ought to do to Christ. And I think we, don't, we could also say none of us live up to that every day either, but it's a goal toward which we should be striving. There are many more things that could be said on this subject but moving on now to the next set of relationships, that of parents with children, let's see what the Bible has to say about them. Should children obey their parents? It says here, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So when it says parents in the Lord, is it saying only Christian parents? I don't think that that's what the passage is saying. It's saying... In the Lord, you're under the Lord's authority, so obey your parents. Then it says in the next verse, honor your father and mother, which many would see to be, I think rightly, a quote from the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, or some of the repetition of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. And it says this is the first commandment with a promise. What is the promise? So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. We have to consider whether this promise is an absolute promise or whether it's a promise more in the sense of a proverb. A proverb would be, here's what generally happens. The wise versus the foolish, the, uh, the wicked versus the righteous. What is their general end? Generally speaking, the wicked face, face punishment. Generally speaking, the righteous prosper. We live in a world where often those categories seem to be reversed, right? The wicked prevail and promote injustice, and the righteous are downtrodden and mistreated and taken advantage of. So then, is this promise something that has failed? Or are there any other possible explanations? This is a difficult thing to consider. I think Paul's point is this. Generally speaking, if a child 
obeys father and mother, that often corresponds with life on the earth, with long life on the earth. If a child does not obey, that often corresponds to a much shorter life on the earth. And there are a variety of ways in which this could take place. When we talk about the responsibility of children to their parents, we see two words used here. One is obey, and the other is honor. Are children supposed to honor their parents forever? Are they supposed to obey their parents forever? I would argue, based on the context, for example, verse 31 of chapter 5, when it says, A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, I would argue that there is a cutoff point for the responsibility of a child to obey his or her parents. In Paul's day, it would have been the point at which uh, two children get married. Here's the son from this family. Here's the daughter from this other family. They have joined together, and now they are a new family unit. Their primary allegiance now is to one another rather than to their parents as it was before. The responsibility to honor their parents, however, continues. It doesn't immediately go away uh, the instant that they get married. The responsibility to honor continues. And so I would say this. Obey as long as you are a child, honor as long as your parents are alive. We have complicated situations today in which, for example, a son or a daughter might be living at home. They might be uh, working a job. They might be paying some of their own bills. Are they still to be treated as a child? I think practically speaking, as long as a child is living as a child, they have a responsibility to obey their parents' authority. If my parents are washing my clothes and feeding me meals and buying the food for me and paying my cell phone bill and my car insurance and all those sorts of things, I'm living as a child. I have a responsibility to act as a child, which is to obey their authority within certain reasonable discussions of what the boundaries of that are. But if there is someone who is living at home, preparing their own food, paying their own bills, and their parents have just said, you can live here for a time, perhaps during college and those sorts of things, then I think the relationship is, if it has not fully transitioned to the honor stage, it is definitely getting close to that point. When in verse 4 it says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, this, too, is a parallel with what we saw in the previous section. There is a responsibility for the one in a position of leadership. The husband is over the wife in terms of authority structures, but that doesn't mean that he can abuse his power. In the same way, children are under their parents, specifically fathers are over their children in terms of the authority structure that is outlined here, but that doesn't mean that they can mistreat their children. And by mistreat, uh, there's a variety of levels to which this could take place. Certainly, it is absolutely sinful and corrupt for a father or a mother to ever abuse their children physically or in other ways. But even in the way that you approach your parenting, this verse, I think, gives us wisdom, which says, do not provoke your children to anger. What does it look like to provoke your children to anger? 
there are a variety of ways that I think we might apply this verse, but provoking your children to anger flows out of things like inconsistency. You get punished for doing wrong this day. You don't get punished the next day. The child doesn't know what to expect. Inaccuracy. You base the, your reasons for doing things on extra-biblical sorts of ideas. It's not, God said this, and I'm the authority that God's put over you, so I want you to do this. It's just, well, I said to do it. Or, this person said it worked for them. Or, this self-help book said, this is how you're supposed to parent. That's not how we're supposed to approach parenting. We're supposed to instead, as the second half of the verse says, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Whose responsibility is this? In our society, we tend to delegate this responsibility to Sunday school teachers, sometimes Christian school teachers, or writers of Christian curriculum, depending on your particular method of educating your children at this particular point. Who has the primary responsibility for making sure that children in a home know who God is and hopefully grow up to follow and serve him? It's fathers. So if a dad says, well, I'm not here all day, so I have no responsibility to see that my children know God, I'm going to leave that all up to my wife. The Sunday school teacher has it covered. The Christian school teacher has it covered. You are not obeying this verse. There is a measure of proper delegation of that responsibility to some extent, as in this doesn't mean that every father has to be the only one to teach his children about God. I think we see from the example of the Bible, that there's a place for pastors to teach children about God. There's a place, perhaps, for others in the church to teach children about God. But the Father bears the primary responsibility for making sure that this happens. And if it happens poorly, that's his responsibility. If it happens well, then he's fulfilling his responsibility well. And so, fathers, do your job. Don't give up on this important task. Don't say, well, someone else will make it happen. It's your job, so follow through with it. Now we come to the last of our three examples. Husbands over wives, wives submitting to husbands. Parents over children, fathers specifically, children submitting to fathers. Now it is masters over slaves, slaves submitting to masters. We'll get into a few moments about the question of slavery and whether it's right, whether it's the same as what we see in our society, but let's first see just simply what does the passage say. It says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Paul, I believe, is recognizing that there is a level at which no one has authority in this way over another person. He says, your masters according to the flesh. The master and the slave in the sight of God are both on equal standing, morally speaking, and in terms of position before God. This is made more clear in other places, like in Colossians, where it says that there is no longer in Christ any slave or free man, male or female, ethnic distinctions, all of those sorts of things. We are all one in Christ. There's a sense in which a slave and a master walked into a church service in the early church, and they came into the service as equals. They left that service as equals, and yet that responsibility of human authority did not ceased to exist when they went back home. The slave still had to obey the master. The master still had authority over the slave. What was the slave called to do? 
recognize that you're serving Christ. Yes, you're serving your master, but ultimately the way that you serve your master is the way that you are serving Christ. What's that supposed to look like with fear and trembling or reverence? In sincerity, verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. In other words, don't just do things the right way when they're watching, but do what's right even when they're not watching and supervising you. Doing it from your heart, verse 6. Verse 7, with goodwill render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing whatever good thing each does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. You're serving Christ. You ought to serve in a proper manner. God can reward you even if your master never recognizes the faithful service that you've performed. Again, this raises the question of, so then masters can do whatever they want, right? No, verse 9, masters do the same things to them. What does he mean, do the same things to them? Oversee them recognizing that you have a master in heaven. Why? He says that in the later part of the verse. Knowing both their master and yours is in heaven, there is no partiality with him. So Paul condemns partiality or favoritism or mistreatment of slaves. He says also, give up threatening. Don't use your position as an opportunity to mistreat those under your supervision because God is watching. He's your master as well as the person who's under you. And he has the authority and the right to carry out justice if you fail to pay attention to what he has called you to do. Brief aside on the subject of slavery. Is slavery right? Slavery that treats one human being as the mere physical property of another human being is not right. Slavery that is one person putting themselves under the authority of another person in for the payment of a debt for a temporary period of time is what we see in some cases in the Old Testament, perhaps most cases in the Old Testament. There were other examples, of course. Someone who was captured in war was sometimes made to serve as a slave to their conqueror. Uh, but the primary or perhaps the most common type of slavery that we see in the Old Testament that was regulated by the law of Moses was a sort of slavery that was, I cannot pay my debts and my obligations, so I'm putting myself under this person to serve until I have paid off those things. It was more of an indentured servitude than a perpetual enslavement and property type of relationship. Were, were there those who did this wrongly in the Old Testament? Yes. Were there those who did it wrongly in the New Testament? Yes. Was it done wrongly in the history of our country? Absolutely. Was it right for people in particularly the South, but not exclusively the South, in the history of the United States to either personally or indirectly take people away from their homes in another country, in another continent, and bring them here and make them work and split up their families and all of those sorts of things, that was wrong. And we still see the effects of that today. And we should continue to repent of such attitudes in our hearts and our minds as we become aware of them. The sort of attitude that would say, I'm better than this person, and I have the right to know that person's motives and to carry out my own justice against that person because that person is somehow lesser than me because of the color of their skin, because they disagree with me about politics, 
because they... I just don't like something about them. That shouldn't be allowed to exist in the church, and the gospel should remove that from us. So if slavery does not really exist in the same way today that it did in Paul's day, where someone says, I can't pay my bills, I'm putting myself under your authority until I pay off those debts, how then do we apply this passage today? A couple of potential applications could be in, connected, in connection with loans or in connection with employment. What I mean by that is, though the primary point of this was to speak to the situations of slaves and masters in Paul's day, which is different from what we see today, at least in our country, in most places in our country, there are applications to the idea of loans, as in, if you are in a position to give a loan to someone, don't take unfair advantage of them. Don't use the position of power that you have to manipulate them. There are car dealerships and other places that do this to people who have bad credit or who have made perhaps bad decisions at different points in their lives, and now they don't have money and they need money, and this person over here says, I have money, so I can set all of the terms, and I'm going to do whatever is best for me, and I'm going to take advantage of you. That's wrong. What about employment? Someone who's in a position of authority over people in his workplace or her workplace says, I am the boss, so I can treat you however I want because I'm the one in charge. That's the complete opposite of the attitude that Paul says masters are supposed to have. And I recognize Paul's primary point is about Christian masters and Christian slaves, so then the primary application would be about Christian bosses and Christian employees. But I think we recognize that we're all in circumstances where that's not always an exact parallel, right? You might have an unbelieving boss and a Christian employee. I think if we take this passage alongside some of the things in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you have a responsibility to obey them even if they are not a good master, a good boss, a good supervisor. Unless they're telling you to do something that's clearly wrong, like, like lie or uh, misrepresent things, cover things up. You have a responsibility to follow them even if they're not nice, even if they're not a good person. Can you find another job? Yes. Go for it. But uh, you still have a responsibility to follow them. And if you're a Christian uh, supervisor and you have unbelievers under you, what's your responsibility toward them? Even though they are not going to be able to fulfill what this passage calls them to do about working diligently and trying to please Christ because they don't have a concept of that, you as a Christian boss should not be threatening them or showing favoritism or any of these other things that this passage condemns. Three examples of relationships. Husbands and wives, fathers and children, masters and slaves. When Paul says in verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, he is saying the fear of Christ should drive submission in these relationships and should drive a proper care and love for those under you in these types of relationships. So husbands, love your wives. Parents, fathers, love your children. Masters, love your slaves. 
obey and respect those who are above, care for those who are below. And in this way, we have opportunity to demonstrate in practical everyday experiences what it means to be a part of Christ's church and to see that we understand that Christ is our head, we submit to him, that he is our example and shows love to those who are under him, and we can illustrate those things for people around us in everyday life.